There was something undeniably thicker about the sound of the 70s. Jahan likes it thick. <laughs> <laughs> I like it all, bro. I like it all. <laughs> He's going to edit that out, Arthur. Welcome to the B-Side. The music snobs. This is the Music Snobs podcast. My name is Arthur, your lead voice, and I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Isaac and Jahan. In 2012, we gave you the Prince episodes. 2013, we gave you Marvin Gaye. A year later, 2014, we did the Michael episode. Five years later, we believe it is time, uh, in celebration of the 45th anniversary of Fulfillingness's first finale, released in 1974, that we discuss Stevelyn Morris, otherwise known as Stevie Wonder. So we bring you six wonders that changed the world. His classic period, Stevie Wonder's classic period, is agreed to be from 1972's Music of My Mind through 1976's magnum opus songs in the key of life but we disagree respectfully there's one more album that jumped this entire this whole period off and that's called where i'm coming from released in 1971 uh stevie wonder's first fully produced album on his own entirely written entirely by stevie wonder and his wife at the time sarita wright it was his last Motown sound period project before he invoked a void clause in his contract on his 21st birthday and left, threatened to leave Motown, well actually left Motown uh, before they uh, renegotiated him back in. But it changed a, uh, it took a more adult, more mature tone in the music. He was very aware of the Vietnam War, the assassinations that had happened in the early and mid-60s of Malcolm X, Medgar Evers, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and got to a more serious, you know, came into a more serious voice with his lyrics. Unfortunately, it was released in April 1971, a month before Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. Critics ultimately compared the two albums together, and uh, where I'm coming from was... um, just not as man Isaac what would you say no chance right no chance for Stevie no chance for Stevie but it's it's interesting because in terms of performance little Stevie Wonder you know a decade before less than Mm -hmm. a little bit less than a decade before was actually intimidating to Marvin he used to go on stage before you know Motown used to do that those reviews and they'd be all over the country um, and they had multiple acts little Stevie Wonder would actually be the one to perform before Marvin and this was intentional because Motown knew that Marvin was reluctant to get on stage sometimes. And Stevie Wonder, even at that age, was high energy. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? He, he mm-hmm. brought it and during the show. So um, I think Marvin's quote was, you know, why y'all keep putting that little blind sucker uh, on in front of me? <laughs> <laughs> affectionately, affectionately, you know, because he liked, you know, he liked Stevie and Stevie uh-huh. looked up to him. But um, uh-huh. there was there was a little bit of competition um, between the two of them, but you know, they ultimately there's just a lot of admiration because amongst that Motown staple or uh, stable, um, Stevie and 
Marvin and a few others had a, a, I would say, probably a higher appreciation of, you know, music and the musicians that came before them. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. But yeah, when, when what's going on, I mean, what's going on kind of, you know, sucked all, as you would say, took all the air out of the room. Yeah. But, you know, ultimately, ultimately, Stevie, not to get ahead, but ultimately, Stevie, I think, racked up many more Grammys and some of the awards that Marvin coveted. I mm -hmm. think Stevie ended up racking up more of those throughout the 70s. Mm hmm. You know, there's so much to unpack with an artist like this. I mean, you know, before this classic period, he 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 had a career. Uh, this was like chapter two of his or his second act uh, of his of his career. He was signed to Motown uh, as an 11 year old. Um, was an established hit maker. I have never met anyone that just doesn't like Stevie Wonder, except for Miles Davis. Well, okay. <laughs> what? Yeah. What did What did he call him? What? <laughs> Yeah, I don't feel comfortable repeating it, man. Yeah, well, I know, uh, yeah. <laughs> Not before 9 p.m. <laughs> okay, um, do some research, find out what he said about Stevie Wonder. But yeah, he apparently Miles was not a fan. But just personally, you know, it's like I've never met anyone that just didn't, it, they, didn't they didn't necessarily have to be ahead, you know what I'm saying? They didn't have to be like a heavy fan or anything. But his music somehow spoke to everyone in some kind of, you know, in some kind of way. I think a lot of that was deliberate, too. I think Stevie was a very universal person. Um, one of the songs I've listened to a lot this week is uh, Send One Your Love. Mm -hmm. um, and, send, and Send One Your Love, he deliberately, you know, he starts the song and you think he's just talking about sending a woman, you know, his love or, you know, telling, advising men to, you know, make sure she knows that you love her. Um, but then it very quickly becomes more of a universal thing, like, you know, send him your love, talking to women. You know, mm -hmm. um, presumably talking to women. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of his kind of um, rosy outlook on life, you know, uh, maybe that's a bad pun. But, you know, his his outlook, his ideology was much more, you know, let's all love each other, so on and so forth. Um, and I think so that that definitely played a role, a huge role in his songwriting and his appeal to your point. Mm -hmm. You know, I like to talk about um, where I'm coming from in the context of a pivot point. By 1971, uh, I said earlier that, you know, he had long established himself as a, as a hit maker from Motown, uh, both as a performer and a songwriter for other artists. However, because Motown uh, retained control over the content of Stevie's albums, and also how Stevie had to record this music. So, for example, what Stevie would have to do is he would have to you know, sing, sing an idea to an arranger. And then that arranger uh, would go, you know, write out an arrangement, assemble a band, record the music, and then come back, bring Stevie back in, and then say, okay, Stevie, you know, sing this part here, you know, uh, harmonica solo here, piano solo here, you know, uh, ad lib here, and then we're out. Stevie found that, you know, what he was what he what the idea that he had in his head wasn't manifested in what the recorded track was so the combination of these two things plus not feeling that he was getting uh his rightful royalty rate um from motown just built up a lot of um frustration and that was the that was the catalyst for him to invoke a clause that was in his original contract to void his contract and also around this time, he was exposed to an album by um, two um, pioneers in uh, electronic music and synthesizer 
programming, uh, Malcolm Cecil and Bob Margoloff, uh, who developed a synthesizer called Tonto. Uh, and Tonto is an acronym for the original new timbrel orchestra. From my understanding, Tonto is the largest synthesizer that was ever assembled. When you say large, Arthur, how large was this thing? It filled a room. It filled an entire room. 20 feet in diameter and six feet high. Mm. So this was not something that they were like just carting around. This was like set somewhere yeah, you, in one place. <laughs> you, you, had to go, you had to go to it. <laughs> <laughs> so Cecil and Margoloff, they, had, um, they made an album uh, for Atlantic Records in 1971 called... Zero Time. There we go. It's called Zero Time. That's their group. So their group's name is Tonto's Expanding Headband. Tonto's Expanding Headband. Correct. <laughs> we it's might. Se- somebody needs 70s, to explain bro. that one. What can you say? It's the seventies. <laughs> Have either it, of you guys heard this album? I haven't. J- Jahan has it. Oh, okay. So Jay, what's? I mean, is this? Is it? I mean, I, I guess it's hard now to put yourself in the context of the nineteen seventies, but is it a groundbreaking album? It's different than anything else that was around back then. Yeah, I think from what little I know, it sounds like it would have been pretty unique for the time. I think there is a big difference between something being sonic and something being musical. Mm-hmm. You know, you can you can make a lot of things sonic or interesting, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are nice tunes, that they're good songs. Um, and that may not have been what these guys were going for, but for me, I think the if there is interest in it, I think it's I think it's the sounds that they managed to get out of those synths at that time, mm-hmm. um, and the kind of waves and scapes that that created more than it being yo this is a really beautiful song let me go listen to that they're more like sort of soundscapes mm-hmm. than songs mm-hmm. to me but steve you heard this steve you heard this album and was impressed yes he was impressed mostly from the idea that the synthesizer could blend these disparate sounds together i think he felt that it was going to allow him to get closer to manifesting audibly what he heard in his head because the simplest that i have heard of zero time i mean I, I i guess the gracious term i would give it would be atmospheric <laughs> music <laughs> you know what i mean but i felt that i felt that stevie was able to harness this mm-hmm. into the music that he was writing mm-hmm. exactly and, ta- and exactly. take tanto and really use it as an effective tool that's what it is like any instrument like any voice it's a tool Mm-hmm. But the music is the music, and yeah. that that will always stand alone, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But this represented a new way for Stevie to record. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And to be fair, I don't want to downplay the contribution that these guys had, or um, or the sound that they helped create for Stevie. Mm-hmm. It's still crucial. It goes hand in hand with the strength of his compositions and his performance. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's especially important if you contextualize it against what a lot of the other cats were doing in the 70s. For me, I I guess pianos and electric pianos like the Rhodes or the Whirly, they were a bit more prominent in music at that Mm -hmm. point. So then along comes Stevie and these cats and you start getting into this dreamy kind of soundscape territory. It lends the tunes this kind of vibey, otherworldly feel like... If you listen to a lot of these songs on headphones in the dark, it sounds like a dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, Isaac, you had that experience with Superwoman, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, I, I had heard the song before, but I was, I mean, I heard, you know, like you said, Stevie is, is 
beloved by everyone, but he's also, to me, one of those artists that you take for granted because he's so ingrained. You know, he's uh, so ingrained uh-huh. into... Yeah. I think he's ingrained into American culture, um, general, and then specifically um, into Black American culture. And so he's someone that you kind of, you hear all the time, and especially back in the days of terrestrial radio, before, we, before everything was online and before everything was streaming. Um, Stevie was always on, you know, no matter what uh, R&B station you listen to, there's always mm-hmm. some Stevie in there. And so, yeah, over the last couple of weeks, in preparation of the show, of course, I've been giving it more of a detailed listen. And one of those songs, yeah, that jumped out to me was Superwoman. And I was like, whoa, you know, this I've heard this before, but I haven't heard this. You know, I haven't really heard this. Um, so, yeah, that that dreamscape quality is there. Had you heard it, Isaac, in full? Superwoman has been covered a lot. What I always found interesting, I mean, it's been covered by Donny Hathaway, mm-hmm. the main ingredient, uh, George Duke, Eric Benet. And what I found interesting about it is they don't always cover the full song. Like they may cover the very well, mm. um, the, you know, the beginning section, but they won't necessarily cover the the where were you when I needed you mm-hmm. section. And, and to me, it's like you, you can't have one without the other. You know what? When I, when I heard it, like a few weeks ago when I heard it, I thought because it was playing and I wasn't looking at my computer. So I thought it was two different songs. You thought it was a different song. Ah, and uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Yeah. it made me think, okay, have, when I've heard this song before on the radio or where, did they play this whole song or did they, they cut it off after that, that first three, uh, four minutes or whatever? Um, I don't know. Maybe they, I don't know if they, yeah, I think they cut it off. Yeah. That's what I'm guessing they must've done. But I mean, wow, man. Wow. And that second section, wow. <laughs> I mean, right or wrong. I know there's no right or wrong. It's music, but right or wrong that second section is the haunting part that's yeah oh absolutely yeah absolutely. really actually if we're counting properly it's not two parts it's three parts because that interlude mm. the interlude that interlude yeah. where the synths come in and it's like a sea of synths i mean dreamy haunting whatever you want to call it it lets you know that something's happening mm-hmm mm-hmm And his use of the refrain, man, it's like he, he'd write a lyric and then just use this refrain that shit to the point where it's like, OK, what's is he is he trying to hurt me? <laughs> it's like, what are you what are you doing, Stevie? What's up? You right. know, and it's like that yearning. It's, it's Stevie right, is right. confusing to me a little bit, not to get completely off, the, you know, not to go on a complete tangent. But Stevie is a bit confusing to me because on one hand, he's so damn happy go lucky, you know, and then on the other hand, he's so devastating. It's like what? You know, that's that's a bit confusing to me about Stevie. And it makes me want to actually read 
um, more about him, you know, more about his life, especially during that time period to understand him a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, um, so, yeah, back to what you were saying, Arthur, I think that. So what you're saying as far as this introduction and this tool, it's me. It sounds like Stevie, as a musician, recognized what this tool could do for him. Um, And, you know, like any any pure artist or any great musician, um, he saw a pathway or a, a new a new path, you know, to explore and to express more of what he was trying to say. But Arthur, on behalf of our audience, I'm gonna put you on the spot a little bit here, bro, because you you kicked this off by saying we're here to tell you that where I'm coming from is part of the classic period. It's part is you know, it's one of the wonders of the world. Do you look at that album, Where I'm Coming From, separate from Music of My Mind, Talking Book, Inner Visions, etc.? Do you look at it as, as as separate to that or do you look at it as part of the same series? Um well admittedly I look at it as separate to those albums, to those five albums. But I do believe, I mean, two things. But still a classic. But still a classic. But I believe two things. One is, I don't believe that those albums would be, from a lyrical subject standpoint, I don't think they would be the same were it not for what he started to do lyrically with Sarita on the songs um, containing Where I'm Coming From. I think that's a good point because Where I'm Coming From, that was one of the first times or the first time where he'd written every song, yeah. or at least co-written every song. Yeah, and I feel that that song liberated him lyrically. Mm. And I feel that the Tonto specifically freed him musically. I wonder if it's just the production style that's really separating where I'm coming from from the rest of that catalogue in the 70s. I wonder. I wonder if this album would be regarded would be much more celebrated mm. because you know the the material on here never dreamed you'd leave in the summer is on here yeah it's like a clear precursor to superwoman to uh, the where were you when i needed you and to take it back to what isaac was saying you have that celebratory stevie the material on here you know that get up and jam stevie but you also have now this kind of somber slightly devastated <laughs> dude, material on here dude, as well before never dreamed you leave in summer the song right before that is take up a course in happiness <laughs> <laughs> yeah but he's got excuse I, I, me we'll get to this we'll get to this hold on, but hold he on. Does, i'm gonna he convince you these, he, i'm gonna convince you to take up a course in happiness and then i'm gonna ruin your entire fucking life with this song look i don't this what i'm kind of confused saying, by stevie <laughs> that's like a pattern of his mm-hmm. <laughs> he's like a serial you know raise you up to the high heavens and then mm. just drop you straight back down mm. to the earth hard he's okay and and this l- l- let me just for our listeners stevie was how old arthur when where i'm coming from was was recorded 2021 2021 so how because i did not know until recently that because I've, I've heard never dreamed a million times um but may not that many times because you really can't listen to that song too often i don't care what type of mood you in you could be happy as hell you could just got right. married won the lotto whatever that song is going to hurt you so i haven't listened to it that much but i've listened to it a lot but i didn't know that it was on this album mm-hmm. and this mm-hmm. is why you could you could to john's point about taking songs and putting them different you could take never dreamed and put it on i don't know something out of the eight when he was a grown-ass man hotter than july or something you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. how does a 20 year old how does a 20 year old not only co-write that song how does he sing that song like he listen you know i'm a marvin head 
But Marvin had to wait until Marvin had to wait until he went through some shit before he could do Varnable, the real, the, the actual Varnable, you know, the one that he that he um, uh, did later in his life. He had to go through some things. How does a 20 year old do Never Dreamed um, You'd Leave in Summer? And if, if if there's anybody listening to us who has not heard that song, stop right now. You never we never do this. We always tell you to finish our show first. But listen, stop the show right now. <laughs> go listen to that song. Make sure you're sitting down someplace when you do it. Don't don't be out in the world or don't be driving a car. Go listen to that song, then come back and, and check us out and, and hear the rest of this conversation. But you, you guys get my point, though. Well, I don't quite feel the same way you do about it, but the fact that it was used in... Poetic justice. Right, poetic justice, <laughs> pretty much like 20 years after it was recorded, mm-hmm. and it still feels timeless. You know, that's that's hard to do. Yeah, and that's I guess maybe that's why I just assumed that this song was from when like Stevie was like grown ass man. You, you know, know, not that I mean not that we're not that we are, but I don't want to discount the the contribution of uh Sarita because they're they're married, they're in love, you know, and you know, and we all know that significant others specifically, you know, can pull things out of us that we didn't know that we had. And that's what I mean by, you know, by this was this was a declaration lyrically where I'm coming from lyrically for him to separate himself and establish his own identity. And, you know, and musically, I don't think that completely in a vacuum with one album, he sought out Cecil and uh, Margolaf. I mean, for example, 1968's In a Silent Way by Miles Davis between Herbie Hancock and Chick Corea, what they were doing uh, with the electric piano with the roads in particular but you know what man even maybe and i i i i i really think this 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 was an influence of what george duke was doing with frank zappa yeah yeah of course and Zao, you know don't forget zao and all's i mean mm-hmm. you know that's probably my favorite album of all time but don't forget joe zao and all was a key influence key compositional influence on all that but definitely george duke my guy definitely does not get the credit he deserves across black music you know the idea that oh okay this is how i can express myself like how can i do this differently yeah i mean no doubt at that time these guys were embracing electronics in a completely different way but just one point before we move off um on Cyrita, i think it's important to note that she was composing she was you know writing songs traditionally with stevie wonder i don't think she should be relegated to like a stevie kind of whisperer (laughs) (laughs) stevie whisperer Mm So, so he, he meets these cats and after where I'm coming from, Arthur, then Music of My Mind. Well, Music of My Mind received, um, critically received um, some very warm reviews. Um, some called it the best thing to come out of Motown since What's Going On, which is kind of funny because it's what's going on and completely overshadowed where I'm coming from. So, you know, I really think that Stevie, Margolov and Cecil found, found their, their, their legs and really got into a groove with uh, Talking Book, which was released in the fall of 72. Music of My Mind in the Spring, Talking Book later in the year. And I really think that's a great marriage. They found a voice to be able to integrate uh, the electronic instruments that Stevie was working with, with analog instruments and um, a rhythm section. So Arthur, you talked about these two cats, Cecil, and how do you pronounce the other guy's name? Margolov. Okay, so Cecil and Margolov. Who did? I mean, tell me, because we talked a lot about the Tonto, the actual um, machine that they created, um, instrument, if you will. But tell me a little bit, because I, you know, 
we saw I've watched a doc that Jahan sent over um, this week that you know illustrated mm-hmm. a lot about these guys but we know about zero time but tell me a little bit about these guys and what their role was because they didn't just introduce this machine to Stevie they you know they they worked on with him on music of my mind talking book etc so what do we know about these guys so Cecil um, in a nutshell yeah <laughs> So, <laughs> right. Cecil I felt, was. Uh, I felt you winding up. I felt you winding up. Dude. I sure you was, won, man. Won, I sure your, was. Your arm went back. Malcolm Cecil you, was born in 1947. <laughs> Pete Townsend you said. Up. It was like, hold up. In a nutshell. Robert Morgan studied at Trinity College, Cambridge. <laughs> Not that much. It was about to be Arthurpedia up in this mug. I was like, hold on, wait a minute. <laughs> well, you know, um, they they were the guys that were able to that were able to get the sounds out of Stevie's head and onto tape. Cecil was an engineer. Mario Loft was a was uh, was a synth programmer and each one taught the other their, you know, their craft. And so what they were able to do, and interestingly enough, I mean what they were able to do was um, you know, because the Tonto, you didn't necessarily know like what you didn't necessarily know how the sound was going to be manifest, right? You know, they recorded this music in such a way where it's almost like improv that when the sound sounded right to Stevie, you know, they just they just they just went with that. It was also the first time that Stevie was heard playing drums. There was a description that Stevie's setup was completely unorthodox, that it was basically based on Cecil asking Stevie, okay, hit a tom tom. And Stevie would just flail a stick in a certain direction. Stevie hit a cymbal and in wherever the hell that stick was gonna go. That's where the symbol was placed, you know, and Stevie was able to, you know, and Stevie right. was able to play. And so this, you know, it just gave him a lot of freedom. You know, they didn't necessarily have to bring in, you know, a series of musicians to assemble a band and rehearse. You know, they could just bring in certain people for certain parts as needed, like Michael Sambello for, you know, for guitar. And it is something. I mean, I find it hard to program since now, so I can't imagine what it was like back then. Um, and remember, they didn't they didn't have presets to start from, so um, yeah. But one thing I heard, Isaac, um, on that documentary you were mentioning, one thing I had heard was while they were taking all this time, this understandable amount of time to set everything up, they would always have a Rhodes or a piano ready for Stevie. Mm-hmm. And they had one rule always keep the tape running Mm, and always make sure Stevie's mic'd. Mm. And Cecil was even saying that he'd fired assistants because they hadn't put the tape on or they'd let the tape run out. And this was to record to make sure that no ideas were lost. Exactly. Nothing that Stevie was doing, just noodling around and just creating whatever, none of that would be lost. Okay. Exactly. So you don't suddenly have visions gone. (laughs) (laughs) No one ever (laughs) Uh, just snap your fingers like damn (laughs) somebody should have been recording that (laughs) and I do know that part of what they did was to go back through all that material Mm. periodically and find ideas that they thought were dope 
bring them back to Stevie's attention and say, hey, look, you remember when you did this? Mm -hmm. And then Stevie would carry on working on it and, you know, build it into a fully fledged mm -hmm. song. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's a question, I guess, when you wrap up everything that they were doing, what credit does that deserve? Does it deserve a producer credit? Does it, is it just an engineer? Is it an A&R role? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I know that they were eventually, as they saw it, demoted mm -hmm. from associate producers on the mm. first few albums right. to mm -hmm. just engineers. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you guys this. Is there a huge leap? I mean, because Music In My Mind and, and Talking Book are released in the same year. Is there a huge leap between these two albums? Or, do you, or Arthur, do you consider these two albums of a similar vein? I think they're in a similar vein, but I think that I think that talking book is refined. Mm, okay. I have the opposite view. I think it's just different. Mm -hmm. But um, talking book and inner visions probably are my favorite Stevie Wonder albums. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Me too. Yeah. And talking book in particular has a very very raw kind of sound to it. It's dirty. Mm. It's gritty. That that's like Stevie's rawest album. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. got a lot more funk to it for me. And I don't mean to imply that the rest of it is super polished it's not mm. um certainly not until his 80s stuff mm -hmm. but to me talking book very much has its own identity separate from the other 70s albums in that way mm -hmm. It's a it's a very raw cover as well. That um the image of Stevie on I, I guess I don't know if that's a beach or a mountainside or something like that. Well, it looks like they dropped him in the desert in California somewhere. <laughs> but it's like if you compare it to music in my mind, that that image of him mm -hmm. with the sunglasses, that's a much more polished. You know, it looks more like an album cover. Yeah. Um, talking book, the cover looks more. It just to to use Jay's word, it looks raw. Mm -hmm. It looks like a snapshot. Well, I mean, okay, so. I look at it as refined from a sense of like design language, like an industrial design or in print design, Isaac, you might be able to relate to this, mm -hmm. um, where for music of my mind, you know, it wasn't, it was, there were just a few other people that got involved beyond uh, Stevie and Cecil and Margoloff. I mean, Sarita background uh they brought in a guitarist buzz felton uh on a song or two um but that was about it right and you know you kind of do that when you, you you know it's like you're in a lab you know and you have a very controlled environment before you bring other people into it to make sure that what you're working on is actually stable mm -hmm. you know and music of my mind is released it gets good reception um generates a hit with, with uh, Superwoman. And so going into Talking Book, you know, they bring more people in. You've got David Sanborn on saxophone. You've got Jeff Beck, who um, was crazy famous guitarist in the late 60s and the 70s um, for looking for another pure love. Um, you know, you've got, uh, you know, back, more background vocalists. Ray Parker Jr. appears on Maybe Your Baby. Um, you know, Denise Williams 
uh, sings back up on on Tuesday Heartbreak. You know, saying me, uh, yeah, and Jim Jim Gilstrap and Lonnie Groves. So yeah. it's so you see what I'm saying? It's like okay, we we've, we've got this. You know, we we we've got our language. We're gonna bring more people into this because the core is stable. Your sound, you've got a sound. I think it's Talking Book that projects that to the world confidently. You know, and and as a result, it wins album of the year in the Grammys. Mm-hmm. I think confident is the key word of what you just said. So okay, so now okay, so tell me about we go from there to what Intervisions? Yeah, the the Goat album. Okay, it's like a damn crusade goat. between Intervisions and and songs as far as like what's the greatest Stevie Wonder album. But I mean, to you it's Intervisions. Jay's with me. We 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 can't lose. It's Intervisions. Between them two, hundred percent, hundred percent. Okay, so okay, why? Why is this? Why is this the goat? In a nutshell, <laughs> right? If you want a nutshell, I'll let Jay go first. You know, well, I think it's only nowadays that we have this impression that you know more is better. Until the '90s, albums were routinely less than an hour long, and I mean, no one's going back saying Innovisions will be better with five more songs. <laughs> <laughs> no one does that. Um, and I think when you have more songs which are in a similar vein and the music's not super eclectic, I think you can get overlaps. And sometimes you can lessen the impact of a punch by having a similar punch elsewhere on the record. And at, I mean, you know, it's just particular to me. I like perhaps something short and sharp. And, you know, I do mm-hmm. I do dig some double albums. If you can do it, brilliant. But mm-hmm. I'm not saying Key of Life is guilty of this, but... Innovisions doesn't give you any chance at all for your attention to wander. It, mm-hmm. it always leaves you satisfied and wanting more at the same time. Mm-hmm. The laws never passed, but somehow all men feel they're truly free at last. Have we really gone this far through space and time? a vision in my mind I'm not one who make believes I know that leaves are green they only turn comes around I know just what I say today's not yesterday and all things have an ending the other reason I prefer Innovisions is I just prefer the production on it mm-hmm. um, it's a lot less polished less slick mm-hmm. I appreciate these are words that may not mean much, but it's a lot warmer, yeah. rounder, mm-hmm. softer, kind of thicker sound. <laughs> and I, you know, I'd really like to think that knowing that the trio recorded, uh, you know, Margot, uh, no, I think it's Cecil that thinks that they recorded like 240 songs, but I'd like to think yeah. that these songs were committed to tape, you know, chronologically, you know? Um, Whoa, whoa, whoa! Two hundred and forty songs over the span of their relationship. The span of their relationship. Just for intervisions. Yeah, correct, correct. Oh, I was about to say, yeah, Jesus. right. That's some songs okay, right. for the key of life of your ass, right? <laughs> no, but um, <laughs> right. 
I mean, jokes aside, like living for the city, for example, I mean, it's it's almost seven and a half minutes. And while while Superwoman um, is um, close to that length, you know, there are two clear songs that are make it easy for radio programmers to sort of splice, you know. Um, but living for the city, while you know you can splice it, it's just it's just such a good song that it makes it very hard to splice it cleanly, you know. And to do a short version, a radio mm-hmm. version of the song, which was, I mean, to my understanding, it was released as a single, but you know, it's just a hard cut wherever they fade it out, um, you know. But it's just a it's just a, a you know a fade out wherever it sort of like makes sense from a time standpoint but you miss so much more you know of the song mm-hmm. it doesn't work without its full length you know um don't you worry mm-hmm. about a thing is uh uh i mean a little risky in my view because it's very different uh has a has a has a, a just a hard brazilian you know flair to it that or a silver song for my father bro yeah you know i mean i've been hip to that for years well one, well, one of y'all explain it because i don't know what the fuck you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> right so the verse from don't you worry mm-hmm. about a thing has a lot in common with the chorus mm-hmm. for song for my mm-hmm. father so are y'all saying that stevie jacked him? no no it's more like a homage but see oh, yeah it's but see it's a, okay. it's 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 an interesting um um uh, triangle but that because sergio mendez who's most famous for the group Sergio Mendes in Brazil 66 mm, okay. um, was a mm. friend to Horace Silver and inspired Horace Silver to write this song for his father hearkening mm. back to their Portuguese roots and so Sergio was a catalyst for song to my father for it to even be written and recorded and then later Mendes being a friend to Stevie Wonder it's a homage back to that song and into the 70s with with Mendez's um, later group, Brazil 77, covered a series of Stevie mm-hmm. Wonder songs, um, culminating into a song that was written by Stevie Wonder called The Real Thing. So it's just an interesting relationship mm-hmm. okay. here that you, that you, that you, mm-hmm. that plays out in the music. Mm-hmm. Do you know, Arthur, do you know how Intervisions was received um, critically and commercially in comparison with the previous two albums well in comparison did this, I mean, to did this continue his this continue his yeah ascent? it continued his domination it it, it also won okay. grammy of the year so he went for two he went two for two mm. margaloff and uh cecil they 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 won a grammy for best engineering but i mean you know you've got higher ground on this album mm-hmm. which which fits the theme of where i'm coming from he's mr know-it-all um speaks to Watergate. This is a. It's, I mean, it's just a fantastic album. It's a masterpiece. I mean, it's a. It's a. The whole thing, you know, instant masterpiece. No, all that's bullshit. This is an actual masterpiece. Hmm. Higher ground is one of those songs where I know it. I could have never like. I may not have been able to put the title to it, but not being a Stevie head, but I know that song mm-hmm. intrinsically. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's like I know that groove. You know, that I, shuffle. I, that melody, uh-huh. I know it all. Um, I, I don't yeah I don't know where I know it from it's just a, it's, it's a part of me because I'm a part of that culture so okay so then you go from inner visions to the um, one of the greatest um, as a writer one of the greatest titles of an album ever yes you do but now here's the thing so something happens personally to Stevie in between these two albums 
Ah, uh, yeah. Two yeah. or three days prior to to Intervision's release, um, Stevie is in a car, uh, driven by his cousin. They're going from they're in the South. I think they're driving from South Carolina or to South Carolina while Stevie's on tour. And there's a terrible automobile accident involving uh, a tractor trailer that's carrying logs. And the car that Stevie's in, they rear end the truck. And one of the logs comes through the windshield, striking Stevie in the forehead, leaving him in a coma for, for, for several weeks. So, you know, this happens uh, either right before or right after the release of Intervisions. And so, you know, immediately, Intervisions could be Stevie Wonder's last album ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, no, no jokes or, or slant or aside from that, but that's a hell of a way to, to, to just be like a final testament to your career. You know, you, you, know, you have Intervisions. You know, this is a horrible question to ask, but do you think he'd have been immortalized even more than he is now had let's say had in in a visions been his last album mm. right that's an interesting question yeah immortalized maybe but i don't know as well known though because stevie's career man he touched so many gener- he touched generation after generation you know what i'm saying he has a hit Absolutely. like for like what mm. three decades point. like at least one hit so it's like yeah yeah, yeah. if yeah, he yeah, yeah. yeah if that was it then immortalized but i don't know as well known. well you know, know uh okay i take that i take that point but we you know we're we're, we're we are scoping this conversation to a specific period but you know stevie by this point was an international audience and spanned genres um after music of my mind was released uh the rolling stones um gave him an opening slot on their european tour so you've got a rock audience there to see the rolling stones and the opener is stevie wonder that's some significant exposure from the standpoint of what we now refer to as a crossover artist you know what i'm saying but and this is before talking book obviously so he comes out of the coma and what he's is he the same as i mean is he 100 percent back to being stevie or what well i mean you know if you come out of anything depends on who you ask yeah depends on who you ask i guess but i mean my own personal experience with health issues that you know generally lead mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. death that's a nice that's a dark that's a really dark uh way to plug a very special episode that we did of the music snobs <laughs> called Arthur's Story. <laughs> That's actually not as dark and morbid as Arthur just made it sound, but you should go check that out um, on our feed uh, called Arthur's Story, a bonus episode that we did but about it, a year ago. Well, I mean, inherently, it's going to change your outlook on things. I mean, just inherently, when you know, you know, when you when you know that you're you you something happens to you. And you're on a trajectory of leaving this life, but you don't, mm-hmm. you know, am I still here for a reason? What's that reason? You know, um, the things that I worry about and concern myself with, maybe I don't need to concern myself with those things anymore. You know, there's a certain, there's a certain man in the mirror moment that inherently happens to a lot of people that have these kinds of uh, life-threatening situations fall in their laps. Mm -hmm. Did that lead Stevie to fulfilling us? Oh, I I, I mean, absolutely. It it, it would have had to. I I think you can hear it in the music Mm -hmm. because as raw as we were talking about and Mm -hmm. debating over um, 
inner visions and talking book um fulfillingness doesn't sound like that there's a certain there's a certain calmness there's a certain sereneness mm-hmm. So, Jay, you said earlier that um, when I asked of the question about, you know, was Stevie the same after the accident? You said it depends on who you ask. So what, what did you mean by that? Well, Michael Cimbello, guitarist, hmm. he um, I think he said something like Stevie's ESP got really strong um, and he felt that there was an openness to Stevie after the accident and an openness to spirituality. Then on the other side of the coin, and you know, maybe take this one with a pinch of salt, but Cecil and Margolith felt that their relationship started to disintegrate mm-hmm. due to changes in Stevie after the accident. But, mm. you know, who, who knows? Mm. But do, do you, I mean, do you agree with my assessment about the material on Fulfillingness's, um, you know, being being strikingly different than the, than the preceding two albums, possibly preceding three albums? Is it? I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I would say that. I think, for example... You haven't done nothing. Could have been switched out onto Inner Visions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like almost to me. It's almost like a partner song with um, Living for the City or um, or Too High. Maybe I don't know. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, testimony to that is if you listen to Original Musicquarium, which is a best of that Motown released for Stevie in um, the early eighties in nineteen eighty two. I think. Mm-hmm. The first two tracks on there are Superstition from Talking Book and You Haven't Done Nothing from Fulfilling This First Finale. And the sequencing, the way that Superstition goes into You Haven't Done Nothing, Mm. it Mm. sounds like they were Mm -hmm. recorded on the same day in the same session and definitely appear on the same original album. As a matter of fact, when I hear them on their original original albums, on their respective albums, I kind of miss the transition from Mm -hmm. one to the other. (laughs) So tell me this, either of you, were you aware of Fulfillingness' second finale? That this was intended to be a double album? Mm. You know what? I think this is a good point to, because I know you just piqued uh, the listener's interest, so we're going to leave them hanging intentionally for a moment. So that would mean no, you didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't say that. (laughs) You don't know what I know. You don't know what I know. But listen, before we get into that, maybe this is a good time to um, hit our listeners to what's going on with our sister podcast, uh, Snobs on Film. Snobs on Film, where we talk about black action heroes. That's out now. Which is out now, uh, available for subscription. And we encourage you to subscribe. 
Apple Podcasts, uh, available on Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere and everywhere that fine podcasts are distributed. And we're talking about black action heroes like you, Arthur. Oh, no, I'm not a black action hero. Jahan is a black action hero. With the Kung Fu grip. <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, I'm always biased, but it's an excellent show. We get into the genealogy of the black action hero in cinema and ask the question if Hollywood is more amenable uh, to black uh, male and female leads in the action hero context in a similar way that Hollywood is uh, more willing to cast lead black actors and actresses in comedy roles as opposed to dramatic films. But again, please subscribe uh, and leave a review. We really do read the feedback. We love the star ratings. It does help uh, spread the word and get the show into the hands of more listeners and allows us to keep doing it, frankly. All right. Back to it. Fulfilling is the second finale and the manifest ignorance of Isaac. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <Bro. laughs> I, was say, I was just about to say, I, you know what? It's all love, man. It's all love. I know he loves me, so that's why I can take that type of shit. Um, but yeah, I until the, we were talking about this episode, I had never heard of a second finale. Fulfilling is the second finale. And I'm going to guess... I'm going to take a wild guess that I am not alone in that. I'm sure that many people listening right now did not know that there was a second finale of Fulfilling. This is second finale. Yeah, a second finale um, planned for release in 1975. But his work was commencing. Um, and, you know, and probably because of the departure of Margolov and Cecil, Stevie decided why, to. Why, why did they leave? Why, what In a nutshell, what was the, what was, you know. Was it was it because of the lack of recognition or what? Well, it was a combination of things. I mean, Jahan alluded to um, a lot of that. Um, mm. Cecil described a situation in the studio where there were, I mean, just a large group of people. <laughs> oh, this, I remember this. This is from the doc. This is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, Go ahead. I'm there are a large group of people just there in the studio making a ton of noise and distracting him, See? distracting Stevie. <laughs> and at one point, Cecil just got frustrated, turned to the group and said, hey, can you all just keep it down to like, a, you know, what was it? A dull roar? A low roar. A, a low roar. But you say, you're saying how many people he, did he say? He's like 20 people. Yeah. He said 30. He said 30. He said 30. But you guys are sanitizing. It. Let's paint this picture a little bit more clearly. <laughs> so Cecil and Margolov are two European American gentlemen, I assume. Or are they are they European? Are they, are they Cecil's from Cecil's from Britain? John is imagining thirty people in the studio with him, and he's just having nightmares. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Margolov is American. Yeah. Okay, so two two white gentlemen are you know with Stevie and have been with him for years now, recording this recording this music. And so now you have um, Stevie in the studio with. 30 of his, his, his people, which friends. we can assume are probably all African-American, right? I would imagine, but I mean, and the hangers on. They're having a party. Yeah. Hangers on. Yeah. His, 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 his sick offense, his hang, hangers on, whatever you want to call them. They're having a party. Right. And so this, <laughs> this, so can you imagine this? And it, Put yourself in, Cecil, in Cecil and, and Margolov's shoes. Put yourself in their shoes for a minute. Right. You're trying to get some work done. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You got all these brothers in there. You know, you know they're they getting down having a party. And I can just picture that scene where he turns around and says that to him. And in that doc, it says Stevie looked at him and said, don't talk. What do you say? Don't talk to my friends yeah. that way. Don't talk to my people Don't talk to way. my friends that way. That to me, that to me, and you guys have, you, you guys can expound upon this. You, you have more information on this. But to me, that spoke to a bigger, there was more tension there. And I, I imagine that some of this was because yeah. um, the yeah. perception 
of maybe and maybe I don't know if Stevie has ever talked about this or maybe, you know, it's in some uh, a book somewhere. But just the feeling, okay, this is very Stevie's music was very, like I said earlier, intrinsic to black American Mm -hmm. culture. So the fact that he had or I'm not going to say he needed the help, but that he had the help of two white men to help him create this music. There may have been some inner conflict mm-hmm. in Stevie. Am I am I wrong in saying that or just even even um, suggesting that? Am I wrong in suggesting that? Well, no, I don't think that you're wrong in suggesting that. And uh, Cecil also talked about and it might have been Mark Love that actually said that, you know, Stevie may not have been aware of the royalty rate that they had been, that, you know, that they were being paid Um and they and Stevie may not have been responsible for demoting them from a credit standpoint to associate producers and eventually as just engineers or synth programmers for Felinus's first finale. But there was already tension mm-hmm. there. And as mm-hmm. Stevie's status grew, his entourage grew, and there were more people mm-hmm. that were involved. And and you know you you've interviewed I, famous I, I, people. You got to get through one or two people to actually get to the subject. Yeah, you got to get through a lot of layers. But I, you know, and and having that experience with um, celebrities, particular particularly musicians i have to say when i heard when i watched that doc um and we can shout out the doc maybe in the in the uh when we drop the show we can put it in the uh the liner notes but when i watched that doc i kind of believe uh either cecil or margoloff whoever was telling that story I, I i felt that they were being honest about that that moment and i felt that they were being honest about the hurt you know that they kind of felt by stevie not giving them the recognition that they des- that they felt they mm-hmm. deserved um, obviously, none of us were there. You know, saying nobody, nobody at this table can say definitively what happened. But I kind of felt some truth from them. Um, you know what they were saying. I think to be fair, if you're looking at what their contribution was, you should also ask yourself what have they done since they left Stevie? Right. Mm-hmm. And sure, they mm-hmm. worked on Minnie Ripperton's albums. They worked on Gil Scott Heron. Uh, right? A lot of Gil Scott Heron's albums. They worked on Isley albums. But in each of those cases. With Minnie, you had Stevie as a producer. With the Isleys, you had the Isleys as a producer. With Gil Scott Heron, you had Brian Jackson. These are all musical heavyweights. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But who mm-hmm. did Cecil and Margolith work with after Stevie on their own and produce this level of work? Mm-hmm. So I agree, you know, we will never know exactly who did what, who was responsible for what, but I think it's important to note that. I think it's also true to say that there's a lot of engineers who are unsung and should be getting producer credits on records. Mm, mm -hmm. But ultimately, in this particular case, I feel like Stevie could have used a ukulele and a metal trash can turned Mm -hmm. upside down and Mm -hmm. somehow he'd have come out with some dopeness. You know, know, like I said at the beginning, the songs are the songs and he wrote them. The performances are the performances and he played them. Right, right. Yeah, I feel like when you take, when you look at unique sound, slash producer you, the marriage between unique sound and producer um with unique artists so you got unique sound and unique artists i keep my mind comes to to the bomb squad and public enemy mm. and i feel like that is an example of not only a cohesiveness in um the art and the actual work but in ideology and culture you know what i'm saying and between these people you mm-hmm. know so there wasn't and again, I'm just speculating on some of the tension that may have existed between, you know, that may have led to this, um, the lack of, uh, of, of uh, appreciation or the, 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 the um, downfall of their partnership. So I'm speculating all that, all that. But when I think of the Bomb Squad and their unique sound married to Chuck D, who was a unique artist and how perfectly that came together, 
that seems to be a marriage on another level. You know what I'm saying? As far as it's not, it wasn't just about the, the work. It wasn't just about the art. It was people coming from a similar background and that made it a little bit more cohesive. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? No, it does. I had heard a, a side of the argument that because of the climate, 1972, 1973, 1974, it was important for Stevie to be the producer. It was important for Stevie to be the one out front playing all the instruments, doing all these things to put a black face on it. And that if it was exposed in a prominent way that you know two white men were helping in such an enormous way that it would de-emphasize the greatness of Stevie and this music. It would have been nice for Stevie to give more credit in a collaborative sense, you know, than he did. In, you know, in my view, I think I, 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 I get it. You know, I, I get the idea of a black man doing all that he's doing, but it means it's completely obvious. There was a tool that he got exposed to and a relationship was built thereof. I, I don't, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think, I don't think Stevie would have taken a bigger hit as he possibly or Motown may have possibly feared. But you know, I mean, that was just, that was the climate going into the early seventies. Right. And not, and, and us not being in that climate, it's hard to, to comment on it. So Arthur and, and, and John, I think you, you, you may have an answer to this as well. How much of second fulfilling this is second finale? How much have you guys heard? How much is available for us to hear, you know, through various nefarious means? Well, to my knowledge, almost nothing with the exception of a song called Feeding Off the Love of the Land, which if you search YouTube, you could actually actually hear the song. And mm-hmm. it's recorded in the context of uh, Stevie making the soundtrack to Spike Lee's Jungle Fever. Seems to me that fools are even more foolish Thinking of themselves and nobody Then if asked for poor will riches be replenished They say bootstraps must be pulled up by themselves But it's a bit weird because it wasn't actually included on the soundtrack Mm-hmm Despite the soundtrack being all Stevie Wonder original material. Mm-hmm. So I never understood why they didn't actually just put it there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So these were the second finale was recorded after first finale or during or was it just was it outtakes? I mean, what was this? I think it's one of those things that's pure speculation. But if you just look at his material, exactly the material that we're talking about through the 70s, it didn't differ wildly. And I think mm-hmm. that's one reason why. Mm-hmm. A lot of people like it. It has the, I mean, there's a range of material, but it all has a similar kind of personality to it. Um, mm-hmm. There's only two things that we've heard from it. Feeding off the love of the land. And there's another one, I think it's called Children Still Do Believe or, or, or The Future. Yeah. And we haven't really even heard that in a studio format. We've heard a live version of it or it's on YouTube anyway. Um, mm. Okay. So looking at what we did get, we, we got songs in the key of life. So this, I mean, Jay, you said earlier that you prefer a, a much more succinct 
um, get in and get out, hit somebody in their chest and then get out of the room type of album or LP, not just from Stevie, but just in general. This is a double album. Yeah. Yeah. Containing a couple of very long songs. I mean, uh, uh, most notably as. Mm-hmm. So is this, I mean, this and for this purposes of this episode, we're calling this the last um, last classic in you know, the last album in this classic run of Stevie of, of Stevie Wonder. Yeah. Right. This is a classic LP, Arthur. In your opinion, this is classic. Oh man, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it is regarded as the pinnacle, and I mean, I can certainly see why. But in some ways, in some ways, I, in some ways, I see it as a decline. Yeah, I agree. And with you. where Intervisions is the pinnacle. This is a classic decline. That's interesting. It's classic, but, but it's a decline. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Okay, I'm with you. I'm, on, me. I'm, I'm right behind. The accident you. happens after recording Intervisions. After the accident is Fulfillingness's, um, the departure of Cecil and Margolov. And we have, and, you know, and we have songs. Now, songs is released in 1976. 1975, 76, the span in which these songs were recorded and the album subsequently released, you know, Stevie's got contemporaries. Earth, Wind & Fire has released that's the way of the world 1975 mm-hmm. they released open our eyes in 1974 they released spirit in 1976 um mm. george clinton has released mothership connection in 1975 has released clones of dr funkenstein mm. in 1976 yeah. the isley brothers have released the heat is on in 1975 they released harvest for the world in 1976 both albums with mm. contributions heavy mm. contributions by cecil and margalov so i mean stevie's got competition Ohio plays. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Skin tight, fire, honey. Contradiction. Ugh. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that he's a traditional R&B artist by any stretch of the imagination, but I mean, even David Bowie weighs in uh, with a quality album with Young Americans uh, in nineteen mm-hmm. in nineteen seventy four. You know, so there's 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 a lot happening uh, in music that. Stevie, you know, jumped off with definitely with Talking Book. Um, mm-hmm. That Stevie is both responding to, um, and you know, he doesn't. This is the first album uh, outside of the, and I'll use this in quotes, but this is the first album outside of the comfort of Cecil and Margolov's contributions. I think, I mean, again, you know, this is not my, my, my playground or my arena. Stevie isn't my uh, arena like Marvin is. But I would say, though, Stevie is an evolving artist, is he not? So I think that whether or not fulfilling the second finale comes out or not, he's not going to stay in that place. He has to move on, right? So, I, I, you know, songs in the key of life seems inevitable in that sense, right? Right, right. But, I mean, to my point about, about the beginning of the decline, you know, it, it's... <laughs> And I want to get to this too. The material that he released after songs was always compared to everything he did before. You see what I'm saying? So it's like, in other words, how come he didn't, how come, how come, now I disagree, but I mean, how come, according to popular opinion, Stevie fell off after songs? How'd that happen? So you said, so when you say classic, but a decline you don't mean there's no, what i'm what i'm trying to figure out or trying to understand is you there's not something that you're pointing to within songs and saying okay this sound right here or this arrange or whatever is you know a decline from where he was previously you're just saying that 
this is the beginning of a decline yeah it is it's it's my it's well music of my mind is my least favorite songs it, it, you know i mean fav, favorite based on like what i reach for when i'm ready to hear from steve when i'm ready to hear a stevie wonder album songs is not the first album i'm reaching for <laughs> i'm hearing echoes i'm hearing echoes of yeah. our dear friend in my head like what do y'all want what do y'all want from right steve? right <laughs> right you got all the money <laughs> I, what all right arthur you said that you prefer songs in the key of life to music of my mind that's correct but let me ask you something let me put you on the spot Superwoman's on music of my mind. Is there any song on Key of Life that touches you the same way, that achieves what Superwoman achieves? Would you let go of songs in the Key of Life <laughs> to keep Superwoman? <laughs> Sophie's choice, dog. <laughs> um, I'm with you. I'm with you. From a from a me standpoint, I would be satisfied with. Summer soft, really? That makes you a sad. <laughs> yeah, man. Spring's here, then it's gone. Summer's here, then it's gone. Winter's here, then it's gone. Listen, I, I get you, you said but, from. But he, you, see, here's the it's thing. It's from Arthur. It's, this is Arthur shit. But see, but see, here's the this thing. Plan and B. I mean, you were putting it in the context of okay, this album is gone. Everything, everything that's on it is gone. So yeah, I, I would, I would, I would, I would have to sacrifice. Superwoman, as difficult as that would be mm. for songs, just because of Summersoft. No, he feels that Summersoft well, carries the weight. I'm just saying, Summersoft is a it, Summersoft is a is a very is a uh, worthy okay. consolation. Okay, you know, because uh, you're talking okay. gun into my head scenario, right? Because there's a lot of good stuff on songs. It's, songs isn't a garbage album. I'm not saying that. I mean, yeah, no, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. But I guess in this bizarre scenario that i'm constructing um i could understand if you were saying as does everything that i love every little thing about you does or another star does everything that love having you around does i could understand that totally (laughs) (laughs) you know a a lot of great songs aren't truly unique and that's cool and you have a lot of anthems that you can switch out for each other or you have ballads or blues that you can switch out for each other but with key of life and music of my mind i don't know if there's a song on the former yeah. that is equivalent to the feeling or the I, style or the vibe of, of superwoman i'm not disagreeing with you so much as with songs in the key of life i mean you got you got four sides of at least one or two songs of heat on all four of those sides that can certainly yeah, but get you know me what? through the day if I didn't have music yeah, on my mind. That's that's where I'm coming whole, from. Whole, whole album's heat. To, to me, but Jay, to answer you, for me, to answer your question, it, it's songs is to me the better album. But yeah, if I had to take Superwoman over a song, I'm taking Superwoman. Like if I had to, if I had to put one that's in my pocket, if you say okay, you can have all the songs, you can have right, Superwoman. Su- right, you Superwoman's can have come, I can get then one. I'm taking Superwoman, <laughs> and I can get one. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm just taking Superwoman. You know what I'm saying? That's just me. I would say it's probably got the most amount of anthems on it, even when it comes to ballads, etc. Like "Love's in Need of Love Today," etc. Um, As isn't she lovely? Knocks me off my feet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These are, these mm-hmm. are the songs that help ingrain him in the 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 american psyche right you but, know, but okay the world but psyche. see here's the thing so when songs were when, when songs was released remember now stevie didn't put another album out until 1979 three years later 
So you had, I mean, we're talking about like Thriller, right? You had one album that carried people for three years. Yeah. And did right. it. And actually did it. Carried people right. for it three years. It was built for that. It was built for that. Right? Yeah. And so what I'm saying is from a personal level, I was five years old when this album came out. And so five, six, seven, eight, I am immersed in this music because it's you can't escape it. And so I have a lot of personal memories tied to this album. Right. And there's a lot of it. Yeah, there's you a lot of it. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And then as I yeah. got older, I discovered and got into fulfilling this is back. So right. it's just a different yeah, kind I, I, of connect. Even though I remember I've got some pardon the pun visions of experiences mm. with inner visions in real time and fulfilling this is in real time but more so inner visions songs that's like that's like if you were born in 19 you know in 1980 and then thriller came out two years later right you grow up to it i'm not mad at your answer and i, I completely understand your answer and, and like i said i think that songs was built for that type of longevity um, but yeah, my answer, I, I'm with Jay. I would leave all of that on the table and just walk out the door of Superwoman. <laughs> I feel you. I mean, I mean, hey, I feel you. And that's no disrespect yeah, I mean, to I feel songs. You. I you feel know, you. No disrespect. So, so move me past this, okay? Move me past Kia Life because you guys have set me up for somewhat of a cliffhanger in the sense that you said that this is the start of the decline. So what happens after, you know, are you guys saying, are you postulating that? going into the 80s going into the 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 michael jackson prince madonna durant all all that pop era you feel like stevie it was a decline from his 70s dominance. no he couldn't hold he couldn't stay on that that throne the way he did no what i said was that the, it was the popular view that he mm -hmm. declined after that and i think that and we're getting to what i like to call the other wonder years mm -hmm. where you said that shit like there's a trademark on it. Uh, oh, <laughs> I already said, got, like, got t-shirts. What, what I like to call the other wonder years. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the follow-up to Songs in the Key of Life was 1979's Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants, which was a soundtrack album um, to a film that, I don't know if this film ever even hit theaters, it, certainly not nationally. I mean, kind of like that's the way of the world. Like, did anybody ever see that's the way of the world? But... <laughs> But it's a song. It, it's a song w about plants, where nearly every song is 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 uh, is composed from the viewpoint of that plant. The first three, first four songs are actually instrumentals. Yeah, a lot but of it goes from the like yeah. the beginning of the the creation of the world, mm. and and the development of plants in uh, on the on the planet. Um, mm. But people didn't know what to make of it. Because this is the follow-up to, at that time, like the biggest album, The Side of Saturday Night <laughs> right. Fever. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. right. Here's As, and then here's the song yeah. about Yeah, and plants. like the only the only song that was played on the radio was Send One Your Love. Send One Your but there's, Love, yeah. I mean, there's some... Which, which had a beautiful instrumental on the first, yeah, the first album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's so much more gorgeous material on that album. Um, uh, Lives Outside My Window, uh, Black Orchid, um... Um, come back as a flower. On, uh, come back as a flower. Is that Mini Repertin? No, that's um, Sarita. That's Sarita. That's okay. Sarita. Okay, beautiful song. Okay, but to your point, Arthur, is yes, it's a beautiful album. But we can't. I, I, this is one I really, and you know, I'm on the always on the art side, but you really can't 
I can't be mad at the public for not being able to digest this one, especially after sure, songs in the sure, key. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, yeah. it's a, it's a, you know, it's a real, uh, it's a. <laughs> this is a high concept. <laughs> it's album. a, it's a real piece of ginger to clear that palate. Um, <laughs> I wonder if he was a bit nonplussed by it. Like, I wonder if he was thinking, I mean, what, what are you guys expecting? It's the soundtrack. It's not a solo album. Yeah, he couldn't have put this out thinking this is going to hit. This is going to dominate. But once we get to hotter than July. In 1980, that is regarded as the true follow-up to songs where where he's quote unquote you know back in form. That album definitely holds up. I like, I like like this. Okay, so if you were to ask the question, like I'll, I'll ask it, right? Are there any 80s albums of Stevie Wonder's that can hold up or stand up to the classic period? I will be the first to submit Higher Than July because again, I don't I don't think that Stevie fell off. No, I dig his 80s catalogue very much. Mm -hmm. I mean, I will say on Hotter Than July, I think Rocket Love punches way above its weight on that album. But um, I guess my favourite from the 80s would be Woman in Red. (laughs) Apart from Love, Light and Flight and the title track, the songs It's You, Moments Are Moments Mm. and Weakness. Weakness. There it is. Yeah, now I did. I did listen to Weakness several times this week. What a tune, bruv. Yeah. Uh, yeah yeah and that's what Dion Warwick you know Dion Dion Warwick to me is actually uh, she's not the in, in my opinion and she's not the greatest foil if you will to Stevie's voice in other words mm-hmm. I wanted more of a Sarita voice with Stevie's voice mm-hmm. you know um but on weakness wow wow Yeah, bro. I mean, Isaac, I agree with you 100%. Weakness is, is to me, that's like probably a top five Stevie tune. Oh my God. And, and I wonder if sometimes people get hung up on the production. And, you know, production is important, but without the song, man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ironically, the one thing that I would change about Stevie's 80s albums, and maybe the same for characters as well, good album, you will know, with mm-hmm. each beat of my heart, skeletons, mm-hmm. you know, bangers. But perhaps the one thing I would change, ironically, after we spoke about Cecil and Margulif, is actually the engineering on these albums. Because mm, I think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. perhaps they haven't stood the test of time in the same way that the 70s material has. But if cats look past that, I think that they would really be surprised. I'm not, I'm not mad at In Square Circle. I'm really not. Part, part-time lover. Never in your son. Yeah, love you too much. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. So wait a minute though, educate me. Where is Musicquarium in all this? Well, original Musicquarium. It came out in nineteen 
82 and it's, it's basically your best of um, stroke greatest hits and it has some emissions on there and it basically takes mm-hmm. material from music of my mind up to songs in the key of life but it does something that I think every best of should do how, how many new songs there's like four or five new songs well, there's on four there, right? one per side four bangers one per side yeah well, I would say three bangers frontline I could take or leave yeah. three bangers that girl ribbon in the sky and do I do Phew. I mean they're they're all time cuts mm. but yeah all four brand new songs recorded in 1981 to accompany this release original musicquarium so here's a what if for you what if Stevie had built an album around those tracks mm. yeah because you can't tell me an album featuring that girl do I do and Ribbon in the Sky wouldn't have been on its way to being a classic as as dope as anything released in the 70s. <laughs> and interestingly, the point that I made about the other 80s material, which granted is mid-80s and late-80s, that mix issue is not present on these tracks. They sound as dope for me as anything released in the 70s. You know, they sound warm. You know, they sound... Um, thick. Uh, damn mm. it, I was trying to go for a different word, but whatever. <laughs> they sound thick and warm and soft. Go ahead and say they, it. All of that. <laughs> so, but wait a minute, did, did Stevie record these songs specifically for Musiquarium, knowing that, okay, I'm going to add, you know, these songs, to, or did he just pull these songs out of the stuff he was doing at the time? Because if he pulled it out of the stuff he was doing at the time, then yeah, if I'm if I'm in the room with him, I'm like, hold on, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh-huh. We'll put this Musiquarium stuff over here for a second. Keep doing that. You know what I'm saying? We got a brand new album of all new material. <laughs> Jay, what Jay, what if you found out that he recorded Rocket Love with those other three bangers off of uh Because you said like Rocket Love is hitting above his weight. Yeah, so what yeah, if yeah, that's 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 something. I mean that's one of the, to me again, I'm always bringing up the lyrics, but that's one of the best lyrics ever, you know, half a mile from heaven. And then you drop me then, right back down. And then you drop me back down. And then we hit that cold, too cold in the last like mm-hmm. 30 or 40 seconds. Come on, man. Uh, anyway, so what if that, that, I mean, to answer your original question, as far as if those um, four tracks off of Music Aquarium could have been the impetus for an entire new album, I think it depends upon how he recorded them and what context he recorded them. But yeah, if, he, if I found out he recorded those along with Rocket Love in the same time, oh, come on, man. Like that was, that was a missed opportunity. <laughs> Let's just say it. <laughs> All right, that is a full lid on this episode of the Music Snobs podcast. Uh, Again, you can subscribe to our show in iTunes via the podcast app or your iTunes app uh, on your Mac or PC. Uh, We are also in Spotify where you can hit that green button and follow us. Our IG handle is The Music Snobs. Our Twitter handle, Total Music Snobs. You can search The Music Snobs on Facebook. We are online at themusicsnobs.com. And we invite you to check out our sister show, Snobs on Film. All right, that's a full live. We'll see you next episode.